This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome to the programme, which I'm going to kick off with a continuation of the quote with which we ended last week's programme. If you were with us, you will remember it was from an article by His Holiness the Dalai Lama titled Compassion and the Individual. And if you're really interested, you can find it on His Highness's website, www.dalailama.com. In this article, His Highness talks about the importance of interacting with others with compassion and loving kindness. He says, From my own limited experience, I've found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater our own sense of well-being becomes. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. This helps remove whatever fears or insecurities we may have and gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we encounter. It is the ultimate source of success in life. He continues, Ultimately, the reason why love and compassion bring the greatest happiness is simply that our nature cherishes them above all else. The need for love lies at the very foundation of human existence. It results from the profound interdependence we all share with one another. However capable and skillful an individual may be, left alone, he or she will not survive. However vigorous and independent one may feel during the most prosperous periods of life, when one is sick or very young or very old, one must depend on the support of others. It is because our own human existence is so dependent on the help of others that our need for love lies at the very foundation of our existence. Therefore, we need a genuine sense of responsibility and a sincere concern for the welfare of others. He then shows that we depend on loving kindness and compassion all our lives from the very moment we are born, concluding, from the least to the most important event, the affection and respect of others are vital for our happiness. And that is where our last program ended. But the article continues with His Holiness talking about a meeting with a group of scientists in America, and they told him that around 12% of the population in the United States suffered from some form of mental illness. It became clear during our discussion, His Holiness says, that the main cause of depression was not a lack of material necessities, but a deprivation of the affection of others. Now, before we go on to discuss this, let's set our motivation for the program as we usually do, thinking, if possible, that our discussion today may become the cause for countless beings to become enlightened. Thank you. In August of 2013, the magazine Salon ran an article titled How Our Society Breeds Anxiety, Depression and Dysfunction, which seems to fit quite well with what His Holiness the Dalai Lama was saying. Subtitled, Our Belief in Progress Has Increased Our Expectations, The Result is Mass Disappointment, the article is written by Bruce E. Levine and appeared first on the online magazine Alternet which describes itself as an award-winning news magazine and online community that creates original journalism 
and amplifies the best of hundreds of other independent media sources. Alternet's aim is to inspire action and advocacy on the environment, human rights and civil liberties, social justice, media, health care issues and more. Now, of course, Levine's article is about American, not New Zealand society, but I think much of it applies equally to us, as we suffer many of the ailments of the Western civilization America currently heads. Levine's article opens with the statement, Severe disabling mental illness has dramatically increased in the United States. He then quotes Marcia Angel in the New York Times book review as saying, the tally of those who were so disabled by mental disorders that they qualify for supplemental security income or social security disability insurance increased nearly two and a half times between 1987 and 2007, from one in 184 Americans to one in 76. For children, the rise is even more startling, a 35-fold increase in the same two decades. Levine continues, Angel also reports that a large survey of adults conducted between 2001 and 2003, sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health, found that at some point in their lives, 46% of Americans met the criteria established by the American Psychiatric Association for at least one mental illness. In 1998, Martin Seligman, then president of the American Psychological Association, spoke to the National Press Club about an American depression epidemic. We discovered two astonishing things about the rate of depression across the century. The first was there was now between 10 and 20 times as much of it as there was 50 years ago. And the second is that it has become a young person's problem. When I first started working in depression 30 years ago, the average age of which the first onset of depression occurred was 29.5. Now the average age is between 14 and 15. Levine's article continues, In 2011, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that's the CDC, reported that antidepressant use in the United States has increased nearly 400% in the last two decades, making antidepressants the most frequently used class of medications by Americans aged 18 to 44 years. By 2008, 23% of women ages 40 to 59 years were taking antidepressants. The CDC on May the 3rd, 2013, reported that the suicide rate among Americans aged 35 to 64 years increased 28.4% between 1999 and 2010, from 13.7 suicides per 100,000 population in 1999 to 17.6 per 100,000 in 2010. The New York Times reported in 2007 that the number of American children and adolescents treated for bipolar disorder had increased 40-fold between 1994 and 2003. In May 2013, the CDC reported in Mental Health Surveillance Among Children, United States 2005-2011, to the following. A total of 13-20% to 20 of children living in the United States experience a mental disorder in a given year and surveillance during 1994 to 2011 has shown the prevalence of these conditions to be increasing.
The article then goes on to list the probable causes for these dramatic increases in mental illness over the years, including previous underdiagnosis of mental disorders, but recent overdiagnosis of psychiatric disorders. Also, what it calls diagnosis expansionism and a tendency in psychiatry to make normal behaviors into deviations. The first Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that's the DSM, the manual the article calls Psychiatry's Diagnostic Bible, was published by the American Psychiatric Association in 1952 and listed 106 disorders. The fourth edition in 1994 contained 365 diagnoses, and the fifth edition in 2013, although not adding many more, was criticized for creating more mental patients by making it easier to qualify for a mental illness, especially for depression. Notably, it was so criticized by the former head of the DSM 4th edition task force, Alan Francis. The article also notes that the journal PLOS Medicine reported in 2012 that 69% of the DSM 5th edition task force members reported having ties to the pharmaceutical industry. The article goes on, in the last two decades, there have been a slew of books written by journalists and mental health professionals about the lack of science behind the DSM, the overdiagnosis of psychiatric disorders, and the pathologizing of normal behaviors. Even more remarkable than Alan Francis jumping on the DSM trashing bandwagon has been the harsh critique of DSM-5 by Thomas Insel, director of NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health. Insel recently announced that the DSM's diagnostic categories lacked validity and that NIMH will be reorientating its research away from DSM categories. Now another cause for the epidemic lies with the adverse effects of psychiatric drugs, according to investigative journalist Robert Whittaker in his book Anatomy of an Epidemic. Says Levine's Salon article, he reports that these drugs for many patients cause episodic and moderate emotional and behavioral problems to become severe chronic and disabling ones. Examining the scientific literature that now extends over 50 years, Whitaker discovered that while some psychiatric medications for some people may be effective over the short term, these drugs increase the likelihood that a person will become chronically ill over the long term. Whitaker reports, The scientific literature shows that many patients treated for a milder problem will worsen in response to a drug, say have a manic episode after taking, a, taking an antidepressant, and that can lead to a new and more severe diagnosis like bipolar disorder. This can be seen when prepubertal children are given the drug Ritalin for hyperactivity and they develop manic symptoms. Same thing happened when psychiatrists started prescribing antidepressants to children and teenagers. A significant percentage had manic or hypermanic reactions to the antidepressants, writes Whitaker. The children and teenagers are then put on heavier duty drugs, including drug cocktails, but consequently often deteriorate. So those are some of the causes for the mental health epidemic. But the Salon article then makes a very similar causal case to his holiness. It talks about the dehumanizing effect of modern society, starting with a quote from the historian, sociologist and literary critic Lewis Mumford, 
who wrote, The most deadly criticism one could make of modern civilization is that, apart from its man-made crises and catastrophes, it is not humanly interesting. In the end, such a civilization can produce only a mass man, incapable of spontaneous, self-directed activities, at best patient, docile, disciplined to monotonous work to an almost pathetic degree. Ultimately, such a society produces only two groups of men, the conditioners and the conditioned, the active and passive barbarians. Levine comments, Once it was routine for many respected social critics such as Lewis Mumford and Eric Fromm to express concern about the impact of modern civilization on our mental health. But today, the idea that the mental illness epidemic is also being caused by a peculiar rebellion against a dehumanizing society has been for the most part removed from the mainstream map. When a societal problem grows to be all-encompassing, we often no longer even notice it. We are disengaged from our jobs and our schooling. Young people are pressured to accrue increasingly large student loan debt so as to acquire the credentials to get a job in a profession they often have little enthusiasm for, and increasing numbers of people are completely socially isolated. Levine quotes a June 2013 Gallup survey on the state of the American workplace employee engagement that found only 30% of workers were engaged or involved in enthusiastic about and committed to their workplace. In contrast to this actively engaged group, 50% were, and I quote, not engaged, simply going through the motions to get a paycheck, while 20% were classified as actively disengaged, hating going to work and putting energy into undermining their workplace. Those with higher education levels reported more discontent with their workplace. Levine then asks, how engaged are we with our schooling? Another Gallup poll, the school cliff, students' engagement drops with each school year, released in January 2013, reported that the longer students stay in school, the less engaged they become. The poll surveyed nearly half a million students in 37 states and found nearly 80% of elementary students reported being engaged with school. But by high school, only 40% reported being engaged. As the pollsters pointed out, if we were doing right by our students and our future, these numbers would be the absolute opposite. For each year a student progresses in school, they should be more engaged, not less. Life clearly sucks more than it did a generation ago when it comes to student loan debt. According to American Students Assistance, student debt loan statistics, approximately 37 million Americans have student loan debt. The majority of borrowers still paying back their loans are in their 30s or older. Approximately two-thirds of students graduate college with some education debt. Nearly 30% of college students who take out loans drop out of school, and students who drop out of college before earning a degree struggle most with student loans. As of October 2012, the average amount of student loan debt for the class of 2011 was $26,600, a 5% increase from 2010. Only about 37% of federal student loan borrowers between 2004 and 2009 managed to make timely payments without postponing payments 
or becoming delinquent. Levine continues, In addition to the pain of jobs, school and debt, there is increasingly more pain of social isolation. A major study in the American Sociological Review in 2006, Social Isolation in America, examined Americans' core network of confidence. The study authors reported that in 1985, 10% of Americans said they had no confidence in their lives. But by 2014, 25% of Americans stated they had no confidence in their lives. Underlying many of psychiatry's nearly 400 diagnoses is the experience of helplessness, hopelessness, passivity, boredom, fear, isolation and dehumanization, culminating in a loss of autonomy and community connectedness. The article then asks whether societal institutions promote enthusiasm or passivity, respectful personal relationships or manipulative impersonal ones, community trust and confidence or isolation, fear and paranoia, empowerment or helplessness, autonomy, that's self-direction, or heteronomy, that's institutional direction, participatory democracy or authoritarian hierarchies, diversity and stimulation or homogeneity and boredom. To answer this, Levine points to research that shows, and I quote, those labelled with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder do worst in environments that are boring, repetitive and externally controlled, and that ADHD-labelled children are indistinguishable from normals when they have chosen their learning activities and are interested in them. Thus, the standard classroom could not be more imperfectly designed to meet the learning needs of young people who were labelled with ADHD. Levine then refers to an article he published in Alternet the previous year in which he claimed a bias in mental health professionals for interpreting inattention and non-compliance as a mental disorder. He writes, Those with extended schooling have lived for many years in a world where they all pay attention to much that is unstimulating. In this world, one routinely complies with the demands of authorities. Thus, for many MDs and PhDs, people who rebel against this attentional and behavioral compliance appear to be from another world, a diagnosable one. The reality is that with enough helplessness, hopelessness, passivity, boredom, fear, isolation and dehumanization, we rebel and refuse to comply. Some of us rebel by becoming inattentive. Others become aggressive. In large numbers, we eat, drink and gamble too much. Still others become addicted to drugs, illicit and prescription. Millions work slavishly at dissatisfying jobs, become depressed and passive-aggressive, while no small number of us can't cut it and become homeless and appear crazy. Feeling misunderstood and uncared about, millions of us ultimately rebel against societal demands. However, given our wherewithal, our rebellions are often passive and disorganized and routinely futile and self-destructive. When we have hope, energy and friends, we can choose to rebel against societal oppression with, for example, a wildcat strike or a back-to-the-land commune. But when we lack hope, energy and friends, we routinely rebel without consciousness of rebellion and in a manner which today is commonly called mental illness. Now let's go back to a quote from His Highness the Dalai Lama we heard in last week's program. 
If a teacher not only imparts academic education but also assumes responsibility for preparing students for life, his or her pupils will feel trust and respect, and what has been taught will leave an indelible impression on their minds. On the other hand, subjects taught by a teacher who does not show true concern for his or her students' overall well-being will be regarded as temporary and not retained for long. Similarly, if one is sick and being treated in a hospital by a doctor who evinces a warm human feeling, one feels at ease and the doctor's desire to give the best possible care is itself curative, irrespective of the degree of his or her technical skill. On the other hand, if one's doctor lacks human feeling and displays an unfriendly expression, impatience or casual dis- disregard, one will feel anxious, even if he or she is the most highly qualified doctor and the disease has been correctly diagnosed and the right medication prescribed. Inevitably, patients' feelings make a difference to the quality and completeness of their recovery. Even when we engage in ordinary conversation in everyday life, if someone speaks with human feeling, we enjoy listening and respond accordingly. The whole conversation becomes interesting, however unimportant the topic may be. On the other hand, if a person speaks coldly or harshly, we feel uneasy and a wish for a quick end to the interaction. Now isn't this much the same as saying that if in society people are caring and truly interested in others' welfare, we will all have a much greater chance for happiness and well-being. Whereas in a society ruled by fear, dislike or hatred, disregard and automation, happiness and well-being are very hard to come by. Instead, we become isolated and scared. Our world becomes increasingly dystopian and mental illness becomes common, almost the norm. His Holiness says, I believe that no one is born free from the need for love. And this demonstrates that although some modern schools of thought seek to do so, human beings cannot be defined as solely physical. No material object, however beautiful or valuable, can make us feel loved, because our deeper identity and true character lie in the subjective nature of the mind. We humans have existed in our present form for about a hundred thousand years. I believe that if during this time the human mind had been primarily controlled by anger and hatred, our overall population would have decreased. But today, despite all our wars, we find that the human population is greater than ever. This clearly indicates to me that love and compassion predominate in the world. And this is why unpleasant events are news. Compassionate activities are so much part of daily life that they are taken for granted and therefore largely ignored. So far, I've been discussing mainly the mental benefits of compassion, but it contributes to good physical health as well. According to my personal experience, mental stability and physical well-being are directly related. Without question, anger and agitation make us more susceptible to, dis- to illness. On the other hand, if the mind is tranquil and occupied with positive thoughts, the body will not easily fall prey to disease. And now let's turn back to the text that is inspiring this series of radio programs, Namkar Pell's Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun. We've just completed the section on developing love and compassion and now move on to the mind training techniques known as taking adverse circumstances into the path. This comes under the rather clunky heading 
Instructions concerning the five precepts that are the factors of the training. Namkarpel gives five points here, and these are 1. Transforming adverse circumstances into the path. 2. The integrated practice of a single lifetime. 3. The measure of having trained the mind. 4. The commitments of mind training. And 5. The precepts of mind training. Now, transforming adverse circumstances into the path has two parts, according to Nam Karpel, the brief and elaborate explanations. He points to the instruction given in the seven points of mind training, which reads, When the environment and its inhabitants overflow with unwholesomeness, transform adverse circumstances into the path to enlightenment. He writes, The environment is filled with the circumstantial results of the ten unwholesome actions, and the sentient beings who inhabit it think of nothing but disturbing emotions and do nothing but unwholesome deeds. For these reasons, the gods, nagas and hungry spirits who favor such black actions are invigorated and increase in their power and strength. As a result, spiritual practitioners in general are troubled by many interferences, and those who have entered the door of the great vehicle are beset by various adverse factors. Under such circumstances, if you engage in this kind of practice, that means transforming adverse circumstances into the path, and are able to transform hostile influences into conducive factors, to see opponents as supporters and harmful elements as spiritual friends, you will be able to use adverse conditions as supporting factors in the achievement of enlightenment. In this context, Geshe Chengawa said to Geshe Shopawa, It is amazing that your disciples of mind training take support from adverse factors and experience sufferings as happiness. He then talks about taking on adverse circumstances into the path by relying on the special thought of the awakening mind. This means that whatever situation arises, we always try to see how we can use it to progress on the spiritual path. In other words, how can we use it to benefit both ourselves and others? Even if others are being particularly difficult, how can we act so that we increase our positive qualities and bring them as much well-being and, ha and happiness as possible? Of course, that may not be all that much, but that does not mean we don't try. You will notice that normally when people are being really difficult, it's easy for negative emotions to arise and we can get quite aggressive or defensive. But these instructions tell us not to go down that path, but to develop some understanding of the bigger picture and act with patience, tolerance, and as much loving kindness as we can. We'll discuss this further next time, but we'll have to stop here for now our time is up. Please dedicate any positive potential we've generated in the program today to gaining enlightenment for all beings. I hope you've enjoyed the program today and will join us again next week. Go well and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.